Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. This is Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. All right. Thanks, Maddie. You did great. Let that be a lesson. Don't be wandering around out in the hall when you're going to That's a, now you're going to, like, every person that comes up to read, you're going to be like, oh, they must have been late getting into the service. <clears throat> All right, kiddos, uh, we have Elevate this morning, Mr. Jeremy Mr. and Miss Tiffany, uh, and then uh, I think that's it, right? Do we have EGC this morning? We do have EGC this morning. So third, fourth, and fifth grade, you guys miss out on this wonderful passage here. Uh, we are continuing to, uh, yeah, I thought we would get to chapter seven. I think I was just looking out in chapter seven and being like, all right, this is just wrapping up stuff and, you know, a couple warnings here and there, but, uh, this stuff is, uh, is heavy. It's been, it's been, uh, kind of getting to me the last couple weeks. Um, <clears throat> so just so you know, uh, in, in my life, I have struggled to do well around like important people. Um, and I, what I mean by important, like, like famous uh, people, and especially when it's in my, in my realm. Um, <clears throat> and just so you know that, and you guys, I love you guys, and you're all very important to me. That's not what I'm saying. Or you may be like, no, that's, that's true. You do struggle to do well around us too. Um, I can be a little socially awkward. Anyway, uh, several years ago, this is 17 years ago when we were planting the church, um, the church network we're a part of, they would, they would have a, a pastor's retreat every year, which really wasn't a whole lot of a retreat. Um, and uh, they had it, uh, for a couple of years, they had it in Vail. Now, they had it in Vail over the summer, like in June before, it was beautiful, but it was before like Vail was like, you know, where you couldn't afford to be there. It was that season of the year. So, and we, and we didn't put any money toward it. I'm trying to qualify a lot. Whatever. Uh, the point is, um, th there was a pastor's retreat out there, uh, and one year while we were out there, I had to pick a friend up from the Vail Airport. It was about a 30-minute drive from where we were staying. So I went out, and then I got word that their flight was delayed. So right near the airport, there was like this, and this was new back then, this was 17 years ago, but like this bowling alley, arcade, restaurant, bar, cool, like really cool place, the like the Bolarama thing out, out in O'Fallon. Okay, you guys are aware of that, right? It's a pretty cool place. So I was like, look at that, like bowling alleys have come a long way uh, in my day. Uh, so I went and hung out there for a little bit and I was like, this is, this is pretty amazing while I was waiting for their flight. So I got back and I, I told Allison, I was like, we should, we should go there one of the nights we're here. And word kind of got out 
Um, so a couple of like the big name pastors in our network caught wind of this and were like, that'd be awesome, let's go, and we'll drive. So um, Allison and I found ourselves in, a, in an SUV uh, with Eric Mason, who is an incredible pastor up in Philadelphia, uh, it, inner, city, inner city Philadelphia, uh, who was in the passenger seat, and then uh, Matt Chandler, who's pastor of a big church down in Texas, driving, uh, and, and then me and then me and Allison, and we were sitting kind of in the middle. Allison was engaged in conversation in the back, and they are friends, and so I'm just kind of stuck in, in the middle, like, <laughs> and they're having a conversation, and I'm trying desperately to be a part of it. <laughs> We've laughed so hard about this. And so, you know, I'm just trying to like enter, and they weren't like being mean or anything. I, I was just like, I didn't matter. I was just kind of there. And they're, and they're like, oh, that's right. You're the one that told us about this place. And, and I'm just like, yeah, and then, you, yeah. And then guys, uh-huh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, like that was my whole ride for 30 minutes to get out to this place. And I felt like a complete idiot. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody who's like super important or trying to get into a conversation with somebody who's like super important and, and like you feel the need to like impress or name drop or something? Please tell me it's not just me. I know it's me. Because I do this over and over and over again. Um, and I'm like, and, and then I'm like Chris Farley, you know, like, oh, stupid, stupid. Um, all right. Here in our passage this morning, we have somebody standing in the presence of Jesus uh, trying, to impress, trying to impress him. And it doesn't go well. All right. So uh, let's dive in here. Jesus starts off in verse 21, and he's talking to, he's still in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, I'm going to pause right there, and I know that's a, an awkward place to pause, but I want to, I want to kind of stop for, for a minute here. Um, he starts off and he says, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord. Uh, there are a couple of interpretations of the word Lord when you look in Scripture. The, the word, when you see it as all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is the intimate name of God. In Hebrew, it's, it's a whisper, Yahweh. It's not, there's no, it, it's a name even uh, most Jews to this day will not say. It is the intimate name of God. It's like you know his first name. Um, you're talking like, it, almost like a nickname, something that just somebody on the inside uh, can use. Um, that's not what this is, all right? There's another, and our, our language has different things like this. There's another word for Lord, capital L and then O-R-D, that can be used in a couple of, couple of different ways, but we have to go for context. One, it can be, it can be like a title, or it can be like a, like a super title, like a position. Um, you can, it, it can be a title, like Lord and Lady Kelsey of Kensington, right? Uh, or it can be, nobody picked up on that. That was a Chiefs, that's your Chiefs reference there. All right. Uh, or it can be like a position, a little more oomph to it. Lord, master, king. When this word is used referring to God, it is like the formal name of God. It's like Mr. God, right? It's the proper name. 
Because if you approach somebody that's important, uh, you know, you approach them in that formal way. That's the word Lord here. That's what it's being used as. Now, the other thing in ancient literature, especially in Hebrew writing, uh, they didn't uh, have words to, when you repeat a word, it's used for emphasis. Uh, They don't have words like, didn't use words like really or very, you would just repeat the word. So Isaiah 6, the cherubim and seraphim are dancing around, they are flying around the throne of God, and they're singing to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what they're saying there is, really, really holy. So you have this repetition here. The the picture that Jesus is painting here, before we get into the other parts, here's what we see. Jesus, this human who is walking around teaching the masses, giving the Sermon on the Mount, he is indicating here that he is God and that he is the final authority. That's a big deal. Before we get to what he's about to say to whoever the hypothetical person is that is saying this, don't let that pass you by. Don't think, well, yeah, we know that already. Right, I know, but let this sink in. Jesus is claiming to be God. This is huge. And he's teaching people that when they come and address him as Mr. God, Mr. God, that they're going to be talking to him. Not only that, but there's another phrase here that's being used that's common throughout Hebrew uh, scripture. The phrase, on that day. On that day meant the day of judgment. The day of days. On that day. Uh, Now, we often think day of judgment. When we hear that, sometimes we think, you know, thunder and lightning and things being destroyed and all that kind of stuff. And that wasn't necessarily so. I mean, if you're on the wrong side, yes, but actually... For many in the, in the Hebrew text, this is like a day of celebration. This is a day of victory. This is a day when God will restore his people. On that day, God will put this battle to an end. Um, but what we see fully here, before we get in again, before we get into the next part, Jesus is God and that he is the final judge. So that at the final judgment of all things, we will stand before Jesus. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a role model. He's not just a good example. He's not just my homie or my friend of mine or someone we can pull into our agenda when we need him. He is the final judge of all things. Now, here's the good news there. Lots of good news there. One, he is a much better judge than me. He's way more qualified than I am. He's way more qualified than every friend of mine on the left and the right that felt the need to voice their opinion about the Super Bowl halftime show or the He Gets Us ads. Praise God, he's a better judge, right? He is fit to do this. We are told in scripture that Jesus is fit not just to judge the externals, but also the internal motivation of why we do the externals. He is fit to judge the heart. And this part's a big deal. Every person on heaven and on earth will stand before Jesus. And he is qualified to stand as judge. Every week, every, every week, we recite the Apostles' Creed together, right? And one of the most freeing lines of the Apostles' Creed, 
I believe that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. You and I, A, he will not ask our opinion. That's good news. He won't be like, hey, Trey, what'd you think about? <laughs> That's good news. Uh, but also, we won't stand before whatever. We won't stand before cancel culture. We won't stand before the hard right. We won't stand before influencers. You won't stand before your in-laws. Like, that's glorious news. We will stand before Jesus, and he is fit to judge well. Uh, but then he says something kind of troubling. Actually, he starts off with something kind of troubling. Not everyone, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That should, again, these, these passages here, that should give us a little bit of pause. And if we're confident we know who he's talking about, that should give us more pause. <laughs> we're like, yeah, I know, I know who he's talking about. We should be like, ooh, okay, hold on. Is this telling us that a good, proper theology and understanding of who Jesus is is not enough? I think it is. Simply identifying as a Christian doesn't necessarily make someone a follower of Jesus. Now, anybody tripped up on this yet? Nobody's ready to like call me a heretic, right? I mean, if you are, keep your hand down. We'll talk later. Send me an email. Send Joel an email. He'd love to talk to you about it. Uh, now, we may hear that and be like, all right, yeah, amen, amen. You can't just say I follow Jesus and then not do anything and not, not have like no, no evidence to, that your faith exists. And we would probably, I, I think that's true, right? If you say you believe something and do nothing in line with that belief, we'd probably question, do you really believe that? And, and we, or you may say like, yeah, there, there needs to be works, something that demonstrates that faith. And hear me, we're not saved by works. That's not what I'm saying. But I think we would agree that something has to change, right? There has to be some sense of evidence that this faith is legit. Here's what these people, the hypothetical, here's what their evidence is. Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do mighty works in your name? I've talked about this a few times. Uh, I've been asked as a pastor to come and like pray through homes and pray through houses when there's some easiness and some unrest and, and like no like books stacked awkwardly, you know, like no human could stack books like this or anything like that, but like people that are seeing weird things or, or sensing weird things. And listen, I am happy to do that. I am happy to do that with a caveat, all right? Uh, I have never been asked to pray over a person that there has been suspicion of, of like uh, demon possession. I've never, I've never been asked to do that. Uh, I have a friend of mine who was a priest who was telling me about a class in the seminary that he was taking, uh, and there's only a couple priests in the entire archdiocese that actually do this. Um, and uh, what, what they said was, you know that it, like a lot of times they'll get people that come into the office and, be, and, and complain of things that might be supernatural. And they said, oftentimes uh, it could be... Um, tremendous anxiety. It could be a mental illness. It could be uh, influenced by drugs and, and alcohol and whatever. Uh, but they said, here's how you know that it's actually demonic activity is when they say things about you that there's no way they could know. 
that is enough for me. I have a phone number. If that ever happens to you, I have a phone number, and it's not mine. Okay? I'm like, that's good. Yep. That's even worse like, than the guy that's like, if you drop the egg, I pray that you die. Or, you know, like the, the test in faith. I'm like, yep, I'll die. I don't, I don't need somebody coming into my office and saying, remember that time in seventh grade? I'm like melting as a puddle on the ground. All right, anyway. Um, I've never done, I've never cast out a demon in the name of Jesus. I've never done prophecy in mighty works. I mean, we start a church, right? So uh, maybe, that, maybe that qualifies as a mighty work. I don't know. But if this guy doesn't get in, who gets in? He's qualified, right? His stats are pretty solid. He's a first-round Hall of Famer. Walk back with me, if you will, to the third commandment that God gives his people in Exodus. Anybody remember what the third commandment is? Exactly. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. It's the third commandment. Now, what do we often think of when we hear that? Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Cussing, right. Say gosh. That covers everything. All right, so it actually has nothing to do with that. Um, In the ancient world, magic was like a religion. And so there was a way uh, with the gods, there was a way that you could do certain incantations. You could say things in a certain order and manifestations that you could do to get the, to, to obligate the gods and manipulate them to your agenda, to get them to do your bidding. And people would go around, priests of these ancient religions would go around and they would sell their services. They would have a spell that you could use to call the gods to your bidding. Does that make sense? Okay. When the God of Israel, who is different from all of these gods, when he makes himself known to his people, he says very clearly, this is him revealing who he is in his commandments. It's not just waving his finger, but he's saying this, do not think that you can manipulate me for your agenda. Do not think that you can bring my name to bear for your vanity, for your personal glory. I am not like the other gods. You don't manipulate me. And it's better for you to know that. Can you imagine standing before the God of the universe, the one by whom, for whom, and through whom all things are made, the creator, redeemer, savior, and Lord. Can you imagine standing in his presence and going, well, yeah, but wait till you hear what I did. God, didn't we own the libs in your name? Didn't we cancel the bigots in your name? We won the world for Jesus for you, God. Jesus, we took out a Super Bowl ad in your name. Jesus, we critiqued that Super Bowl ad in your name. Have I covered everybody? And Jesus' response is actually kind of frightening. And I will declare to them, I don't even know who you are. Away from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus is simply not impressed by the things that we could do. 
Now, our response to that might be telling. How we receive that might be telling. We may feel indignant or cheated, right? The older brother, I've always done everything you've asked me to do. Or we can also feel complete and total relief. All right. Everybody, deep breath in through your nose, out through your mouth. Let's, before, like, I don't want troubling statements and thoughts uh, to interfere or distract us from what we know to be the character of God revealed in the person and work of Jesus. All right? So this can be heavy. So let's take a deep breath and, and trust in God's goodness. Jesus does say, not everyone. So that does mean there will be people that walk in the kingdom of God who have cast out demons and done mighty works and prophesied in the name of Jesus and they're good. There will be people who address social injustices, who work for justice in our world, who make Jesus known, and who can even offer humbly helpful and insightful ways to think and, and, and critiques of some of the ways that we see our culture, for sure. There will be people in God's kingdom who say, Lord, Lord, and mean it. So let's not lose sight of that. But there's also a warning here that we have to be aware not just of our actions but actually of our motives. Do we walk in humble obedience in God's kingdom or are we trying to bring the name of Jesus to bear for our kingdom? For our agenda? For the things that we prefer? For our way of life? And here's the deal, this is a recurring theme. Now, lest we overreact, you will probably do that. I will do that. We have done that. We will do that. So this is not like a one time and you're out. If you've ever messed this up, you're out. I mean, we are not absolutely purely motivated, probably ever. But even there, when you hear something like this, does it humble you? Does it remind you who is God and who is not? Do you hear this and go, yeah, yeah, no, I've, I've done that, and I, that, this is helpful. I need to repent. That's one side. Some of us, however, we don't necessarily need to be humbled as much as we need to be freed. Because the other side, sometimes it becomes about us because of our pride, Sometimes it becomes about us because of our insecurity and our fear. I'm not good enough to be a Christian. Look at all these people and all the things that they've done. I haven't done that. I'm not, I don't even know if I count. Feeling constantly under the barrage of comparisonitis. Don't feel like you've ever done enough. Like this can be a glorious freedom for you. Uh, almost 30 years ago, I was sitting in my college apartment, Habitat 1A, that they actually had to fumigate. We forgot to totally empty. Well, my roommate 
And it was job to totally empty the fridge. Forgot on the last day, on that day, and we got a nice big fine. Uh, whatever. Uh, this was before that. I was sitting in my, this is bringing up college memories. So I was sitting in my, I was sitting there watching TV. And uh, a friend of mine, Brian Peters, walks through. And we, this was a small Christian college, so we did weird stuff like this. It, it wasn't totally uncommon. And he just walks through, and he's going to hang out with my roommate. And he's like, hey, man, uh, I want you to know that God cares more about you than anything you could ever do. And that's a profound truth, but it's a weird timing. <laughs> but, man, it stuck. And I was like, huh. I, th I think you're right. Friends, guilt, shame, and fear are very, very, very powerful and effective motivators. They will get you to get things done, and they will eat your soul. The hardest maybe most impossible job. I can motivate you to do things. Pastors can motivate people to do things out of fear. Thus saith the Lord. But I think the most impossible thing for a pastor to do, for myself and for you, is to convince us that we are actually loved by God. You are actually loved by God. That in Christ, we are fully accepted and loved, and we don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to validate ourselves. We don't have to say, well, at least I did more than so-and-so. We don't have to compare ourselves to, well, you know, I'm, I'm ahead of the game on this. I have the most, my mission and my project is the most vulnerable of the city, which is way better than yours. I struggled a lot in college with uh, what, what I struggled with in college was understanding and believing that God loved me. And so I kind of had this like, all right, so God, would you still love me if I did this? What if I did this? And eventually, here's what I heard from God. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm still going to love you. This is not going to go well for you but my love isn't on the line. Well, okay, well, what if I did this then? And God's like, yeah. I mean, we can keep going. I'm, I'm not going anywhere. And then I'd be like, and, and you know, well, it's not going to go well. Uh, okay, so there's a catch. There's a catch then. No, no. I mean, knock yourself out. Like literally, knock yourself out. And I'll be here when you come to I have a friend who I love dearly, who was struggling, and one of the things he said to me was, he's like, I, I know, and he was struggling with his belief and the, the applications of that, and he's like, I know you want me to be happy, and he should have known better. I was like, hit pause on that. I want good for you. I want good for you. I hope you're able to delight in what's good for you. 
But it, me wanting you to be happy, I know more than most, happiness is fleeting. And we'll sell our soul for happiness. I want good for you. Okay, all right, now we can keep walking on the trail. <laughs> we, I, we said that while we were walking on the trail. Uh, anyway, this is too often what we do. We separate. This, we have our paradigm here of uh, the no be and do paradigm uh, at refuge. But too many times we live on the no and do paradigm. God says this, so we do this. God says that, so we do that. God says win the world for Jesus, so we go win the world for Jesus. And that's not the way the gospel works. It is not the way the gospel works. That's the way we operate. But that's not the way the gospel works. The gospel works this way. What Christ has accomplished for us, we could never accomplish on our own. So before that directs or commands or compels what we do, it changes who we are. In Christ, you are validated. So you don't have to do all these works to validate yourself. In Christ, you are justified. So you don't have to self-justify with, well, technically, God, I'm going to... No, you're justified. You don't have to compare yourself in pride or in guilt to other brothers and sisters and how well they do it or how terrible they do it. I've told this story before about French and German missionaries. Uh, a friend of mine who was leading a group of French and German missionaries, uh, Christians, and they were doing a thing together. And, and it was something like the, the French couldn't believe how much the German Christians drank and the Germans couldn't believe how much the French... Christians cussed. And I was like, this is beautiful. And they both kind of judged each other. We don't compare. There's no pride or guilt. We've been justified by Jesus, not by how well we're doing versus everybody else. To trust Jesus as Lord and commit your life to him means that on that day, that judgment has already taken place. You stand before God, not alienated, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds, but you have been presented because of the completed work of Jesus, holy and blameless and above reproach. And the good news of the gospel takes deeper root when we get that. The more we get it. So what do we do? What do we do flows out now of, of who we are. What we need to remember far more than what we should do or shouldn't do or the question that I hate, is this a sin or is this not a sin? I think we're asking the wrong question more often than not when we ask that question. We need to remember who, who I am. I'm forgiven. We are a forgiven people. So what is a forgiven people? What is a reconciled people? How do they act? How do they behave? What do they do in these certain situations? What is someone who has been forgiven and reconciled to the God of the universe, how do they respond to a critic? How does forgiveness eke its way out in the way uh, that I'm a friend to other people? How does the fact that I've been reconciled to God help me see my job, my singleness, my marriage, my kids, my teacher, the grocery clerk, the brother-in-law who's very opinionated about every single hot topic? That's not my brother-in-law, in case they ever listen. I don't think they will but it's still not my brother-in-law. If you've been forgiven and reconciled, how does that change the way you see women? If you've been forgiven and reconciled, how does that change the way you see justice, oppression, 
How does it alter who we look up to or who we look down on? How does it inform what you aspire to? I'm going to try not to get choked up here. I'm going to brag a little bit on my older son. Uh, He's in his first year of art school up in Rhode Island. Uh, And this is, I mean, (laughs) this this is one of the most progressive contexts. Like, I I didn't even know it it existed. Um, and And I'm not... That, that, like, don't read too much into that, but it's just, it's not just, like, progressive politically. I mean, it's art school. So it's all these weirdos. It's my son's, like, I love him to death. I say that with the most affection possible. Uh, it's all his people. Um, and, uh, and, I, and here again, I know that his story is long. My sophomore and junior year were some of my greatest struggles in life. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not suggesting that his story is complete, that, that he is a completed work at all, but he's doing some things right now that are incredible, incredible to me, that are both conviction and encouragement that I'm learning from. He goes to Bible study at Brown University, Ivy League University. He's one of three white kids in this Bible study. Three, like, non, uh, all, all the other cultures uh, that are Ivy League students that don't have this uh, weird dynamic between academics and faith, like Western white people do. Uh, and he goes, and he is learning to see God in his everyday, and he's learning to see God in his art uh, and his labor. He invited a guy in his hall uh, to church who was an absolute atheist, and he's like, hey, you want to go to church? And the kid's like, okay. And then afterwards, he's like, what'd you think? And he's like, ah, I didn't like it that much. And my son's like, all right. And if you know my son, you can totally see him doing this. It's almost like he doesn't realize that this is offensive, right? This is like, you're not people that are radically different. He's like a, he's an anomaly up there. People look at him and they're like, I didn't know that you people still existed. Like, I didn't know that there were still people that believed in Jesus. And he's like, yeah. <laughs> he had a kid ask him about his faith. Um, and, uh, and he shared, and so the kid texted him. He texted me at 2.30 in the morning, right after this kid texted him. He's like, hey, this is really cool. I got to talk about my faith with a friend on my hall. And then he texted me just now. <laughs> I'm like, wait till later. Um, he texted me just now and said, hey, I still don't know what I believe, but I really appreciate you taking time to talk to me. And his response, with all the fervor and zeal that Cooper has, was, Cool. He's not embarrassed. He's not trying to overcompensate. He's not trying to win his campus. He may accidentally do that and I would just laugh (laughs) to the glory of God. I envy his confidence. It's like he doesn't know he's supposed to be embarrassed about this stuff. And it's amazing. And and I'm gonna tell you this. Whenever, it'll be a couple months before he comes back home. Don't tell him I told you this. And I'm saying that because his heart is tender. He doesn't do any of this to be seen. None of it. He's an incredible artist, and he doesn't even do that to be seen. He's like, here's this. Can somebody take it, and I'm just going to go over here in the corner. I'm trying to encourage him to, that he's going to have to make enough money to get off our phone plan. But <laughs> um, 
but it's been convicting and encouraging for me to see the way that he's navigating just a world that is not only not Christian, some really anti, and some just like totally unaware. And I'm blown away by it. Jesus goes, at the very beginning, Jesus says, those who walk in the kingdom of God are those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. This does not necessarily mean great and mighty works. So be freed from that. This is simple faithfulness. Sometimes this is just simple faithfulness that can be turned into amazing things by God. Sometimes it's simple faithfulness that we will, oftentimes, simple faithful, like Brian Peters, my friend that came by and said that, had no clue. I'm sure, I didn't have any clue. 30 years from now, this would still impact me. And sometimes it's just simple faithfulness like that. We'll never know the full extent of what Jesus does. When Alice and I first got married, she worked at an insurance agency, and this woman came in, and she was super mean, and she was very curt, and she was very demanding. And uh, Allison was telling one of, the, one, of the, uh, one of her bosses about it. And the guy said, yeah. said, you should have, she was much worse before she, came a, before she became a Christian. <laughs> Praise God, right? I mean, something's working. She's not what she used to be. This verse can be intimidating. It can be humbling. But it can also be a beautiful reminder. You don't have to impress Jesus. You are not called to impress Jesus. Is that singing or sirens? Singing? Either way, pray for, pray for the people that are... Sorry. This can be a beautiful reminder. You don't have to impress Jesus. That doesn't mean you receive it and do nothing. It means you are free just simply by receiving this and being a forgiven person and being on display. What a glorious reminder. I'm getting nervous now. <laughs> Was I off? Is this coming down? Are we all done for? All right. Oh, kids. <laughs> to know and believe that God actually does love you, that he actually does love me, and let that sink in, the more that will change us. It'll change what we do, but it'll also change why we do what we do. Let that sink in. Here's your assignment for the week. Um, we've done this before. Just take time to do another prayer of examine. God, where am I resting in my day believing that you love me? And where am I forfeiting that? Where do I remember that and walk confidently? And when do I forget that and motivated by either pride or guilt? See that in your day. Ask for forgiveness. And here's the thing. Don't ask for forgiveness that you forgot God loved you and be like, oh, I need to remember more that God loved me and like, like, let shame rule the day, be like, how could I forget that? Oh, what I give up when I forget that Jesus actually loves me. And then a prayer for the next day, or a prayer for the day to follow. God, help me to remember. Help me to recall and remember that you actually love me, care for me, want good for me. That is why I walk in obedience. That is why I care for my neighbor. That is why I cast out demons. 
That is why I do mighty works. But also that's why day-to-day faithfulness. Resist, love, walk in obedience. This is what motivates me. And we need to remember that often. And we need to attack, like, when we don't remember that, that we do those things for ulterior motives. All right, let's pray. Oh, thank you, Jesus, for our kids. Uh, that they're here. That there's a whole bunch of them here. Um, and apparently they're having fun. Oh, that we would remember that. God, I pray for hearts and minds here this morning, myself included. Uh, it is really, really easy to walk in fear. It's really, really easy to walk in pride. And when I hear this verse, how easy it is to think of somebody else. So I pray that this would give me pause and reflection. And if I do think of somebody else, that I wouldn't do it in judgment, that I would, do, that I would think of them with compassion, with grief, that I don't want this for them. I don't want friends of mine to stand before you and brag about all the things that they did and to hear from you, I don't even know you. So that changes the way that I approach anybody, myself included. Would you do the impossible? Would you bring life out of death? Would you remind us, reflect on us, if there's somebody here wrestling with this or dealing with this in their own mind, would you bring to light the reality of the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, that our hope is found, um, that you have loved us, given your life for us, made us new, and that we would walk in that. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.